Welcome back to the Fastest Known Podcast. This week, our guest is Adam Campbell, coming down here from Canmore, British Columbia. Welcome, Adam. Yeah, Canmore, Alberta. I'll correct you. Oh, we got to get those provinces right. Oh, my uh, word. <laughs> my mistake. Uh, really, equally beautiful, but different. That's true. Yeah. And you and I just had a good time. We were out in Boulder Reservoir. What were we doing on Boulder Reservoir? Yeah, well, you were teaching me how to sit ski, a little sit surf, and also a little stand-up paddleboarding and hanging out with the rest of the Ultimate Direction team, which was amazing. And you guys were good. You you had it. <laughs> well, thanks to your guidance. For sure, so. <laughs> well, you, of course, are known as a ultra runner and mountain athlete, and you go on ultra sign-up, you had many, many podium spots. You're really, really good, done a lot of events. But pardon me for saying this, and you, we, everyone's heard this story before, but we have to note that on August 31st, 2016, you took a huge fall up in uh, British Columbia off of Mount, was it off of Mount Sir Donald itself or before it, you got to it? It was before we got to it, yeah. It was yeah. in the same range. Um, yeah, so we were maybe two peaks before it. And 200 feet, that's, that's a bit. Yeah, I know. It was, uh, so I was out with Nick Elson and Dakota Jones, two really well-known ultra runners. Well, I think you're, you wrote an article and you described Nick Elson as the fastest guy no one's ever heard of. Yeah, most likely, for sure. He actually he needs to be on the podcast. Way. You no, know, Nick is next level. Dakota Jones is the fastest person you have heard of. Yeah. So that was, that was a stout trio you were with. Yeah, no, absolutely. They were, you know, and, and also, the, I mean, I don't think a lot of people know that Dakota is also quite an accomplished climber as well. He spent a long time climbing and um, and very competent mountain athlete. And he's actually doing rescue courses right now, which is really exciting to hear. Nice. Yeah. So people can read about this, and I'll put up uh, some your article that you wrote on our show notes on the website, so people can refer to that. It was a very good job on the article. No, thank you. Even has some gruesome photos of you, but uh, you came back. I mean, you went back to Hard Rock the next year, so 10 months later, you finished Hard Rock in a little over 33 hours. Yeah, no, I mean, in retrospect, it was maybe a little premature, maybe a little silly, but... Um... I think so. Just just to give people a quick little recap, I we were trying to do a big traverse in Rogers Pass, uh, which is the epicenter of mountaineering in Canada. It's where the birthplace of it, and it's uh, it's not a trail run. Like it's a, it's a legitimate mountaineering traverse. We were on high ridges the whole way. You're crossing glaciers, and um, there's a few sections we had to do some rope work and some like mid fifth class terrain. So it's it was proper proper travel in the mountains. And unfortunately, um, you know when you're moving quickly in the mountains, um, I. You know, things can happen. That's you don't a risk. test every hold. No, and I, I probably should have a little bit in that case. And I was actually going through a bit of a rough patch at the time. Um, and so I was just following Nick and Dakota, where more or less the same area they went through. And a big block pulled out on me. And next thing I knew, I was tumbling uh, about 200 feet down the side of this mountain. And for whatever reason, I was able to survive. We, I was wearing a helmet. Ah, good. Yeah. Um, when you're scrambling that kind of train, you definitely want to be wearing one. And it covered my basal skull, so the back of my skull, because of the way I was tumbling backwards, uh, wow. the whole back of my helmet was crushed. Uh, I happened to be carrying the rope in my pack as well. So it didn't break your back. Uh, so Well, no, I, I did break my back. <laughs> yeah, no. But it, uh, I think it may have protected me a little bit as well. Um, and, and and luckily, Nick and Dakota are really confident. Um, you know, Nick is a, is a rock guide. And Dakota, as I say, is also really, really competent. And, you know, basically, if you're going to have an accident in the mountains, have two of the fastest mountain runners in the world with you because <laughs> they were able to come down to me quite quickly. And we have an incredible search and rescue crew in Canada. So, and the helicopter helped a lot. Exactly, yeah. And we also had a, we chose this objective based on a good weather window. Mm -hmm. We wanted to make sure we had a good 72 hours of good weather. 
not because of the accident, because we thought it might we might be out for a few days. Um, and that allowed them to come in for a rescue quite quickly as well, which I was really fortunate for. And I'm going to note to all the listeners, you were carrying a PLAB. Yeah, we did. Yeah, I had a little inreach with me, and so we were able to deploy that. And, but also, the there's not a lot of areas in that area have cell signal, but the previous peak did. And so Nick was actually able to run up to the previous mountain that we were on and was able to call 911 as well. And just to be able to give them a full description of exactly where we were. Because mm. the, with the inreaches, they're, they're incredible, but it's still there might be a bit of a lag. Um, but I, I basically don't travel that one anymore when I'm going the mountains. Right. Yeah. I carry my uh, Delorme inReach Mini. Exactly. I have exactly the same thing. It's like three and a half ounces. There's no reason not to have it. <laughs> There's no reason no, not exactly. to have yeah. I mean, we can talk to a lot of people on this topic, can't we? Yeah. People we've had in the podcast, of course, Hillary Allen, Dave Mackey. Dave, of course, and we, you kind of, pardon me, but in this illustrious line of runners who've had accidents. You know what, though? If I can be spoken in the same... Uh, sentence as Dave Mack and Hillary, then uh, that's pretty good company regardless. So, yeah. Right. Well, that's true. That's yeah. true. Never, never, inter- so we were out on the second flat iron yesterday. And yeah. you, you were looking really good. You were super solid on that. And someone was saying, Brian Metzler was saying he was trying to get, uh, what was it Brian? Or someone else was saying, trying to get Dave to come out. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah trying to get Dave to come out. And I said, no, you don't want Dave to come out. You're going to get beat by a guy with one leg. Yeah, no, no for sure, yeah. <laughs> no, you got to yeah. stay away from Dave, yeah. especially. I mean, he always could beat you, but now he can beat with one leg. It's uh, it's kind of tough. Yeah, no, he's uh, he's definitely an inspiration and I mean, just such a solid human as well. You know, he's just an amazing person as well as an incredible athlete. Right. Yeah. So you did go back to Hard Rock 10 months later, like you said, maybe a little premature, but the tears were flowing, if yeah. I may say so. Yeah, no, it was quite it was quite therapeutic as well. I mean, even though it was physically the most demanding thing I've ever done, I, I really wasn't, like, I hadn't done the training, obviously, and doing hard rock, I'm, like, not quite prepared. <laughs> it's quite a task, and I really didn't know what my body was going to be able to do, which, which was an interesting perspective for me standing on the start line because there's not a lot of times when I stood on a start line not knowing if I could actually finish. Most of the times I knew I could finish, it's just what could I also finish and perform at a high level. And this time it was, could I actually finish this thing? Mm. Um, but it was also really special because I had Nick and Dakota crewing for me. Oh, wow. Which was, I think that added to the emotions of the day. And I also had Aaron Hyde who was with me in 2014 when we were struck by lightning. So it was, uh, I think we might get into that as well. But, um, <laughs> so I think that added to the emotions of the day. And, um, and it was also quite symbolic for me because throughout the race, it, up to that point, I could sort of, you know, pretend I was doing quite well again physically, but that was just a true embodiment of the difference between reality, reality struck in a really hard way. Yeah. And uh, it actually struck around mile 12. Um, so it was 12? Like, yeah. Oh, well, so well, you had a ways to go. A little ways to go, yeah. <laughs> well, because I started out with the lead group. It's a little really? silly, so I was maybe like eighth or so at the first wow. aid station, and I went out a little bit hard. Um, but that's just where I've always gone. I mean, yeah. the gun goes off, natural competitive felt, instincts. Felt natural. It did, exactly. Wow. And, uh, you know, nobody's going that fast at a race like that. Uh, but then all of a sudden, the league group ran away from me. And that was really, really symbolic to watch those people that I, you know, sort of saw mm-hmm. as peers to a certain degree running away from me. And I, there was nothing I could do. And so I really had to deal with it in the moment. And actually, um, Anna Frost ran up to me and I was crying. Like, I was walking and crying. And she stopped and gave me this huge hug. Wow. And it was really powerful. And she just said, Adam, you have nothing to prove to anybody. 
we think it's incredible that you're here. And so I think that just added to the emotions. That was brilliant. Yeah, it was. It was like this perfect, like she said exactly the right thing at exactly the right wow. time. And I mean, and, you know, she's just a same thing, a beautiful human. And I think that was her personality shining through. She said, basically, you'd already won. Yeah, no, exactly. Just relax. Yeah, 100%. And so I was able to enjoy the day for as long as I could until I stopped enjoying it again. <laughs> Probably around mile like 65. Um, but then also being able to share conversations with Nick and Dakota who, I mean, they, they witnessed me fall and they thought they were coming for a body retrieval. Wow. They thought I died. Whoa. Uh, which is really heavy. And yeah. they, you know, they held on to that as well. Um, you know, they were, they dealt with their own trauma. And uh, so I think being able to sit as a group and discuss what they went through, I think was also therapeutic for them. Very thoughtful. Yeah. Very thoughtful, Adam. Well, again, for the listeners, I'll link to your well, well-written article, so people can go back and read that article. No, thanks. Yeah, yeah you did a very good job with that. No, thanks. There's some, there's some good editors involved. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, of course, this brings up uh, an interesting question of uh, the crossover, right? There's, there used to be runners just ran, starting quite some time ago, for me, a long time ago. It, we started crossing over. We started doing other things. Yeah. And it, this is interesting. I'll just give you my thoughts on this, and yeah. you could you know, tell me what you think. But say a runner has great cardiovascular. They're, they're strong. They're fit. They can get out there. They can go way out there, whether it's skiing, climbing, biking, or whatever. But then do they have the skill set? So if you're a climber, for example, entering a running race, you might run the risk of blisters, yeah. right? Or upset stomach. But if you flip that equation, you're running the risk of dying. Yeah. So what? What? How do you see this? Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. It's the same issue with people coming from gym climbing and then oh. going out into the mountains as well. Um, there, there is a bit of a lack of mountain mentorship happening and slow progression and development over time. Um, so you, you come in with this incredible fitness, and actually, I, I know a lot of runners who do go to the gym and climb as well. Um, you do that in the winter as strength training, and it's, it's really fun. Uh, but it does give you a false sense of confidence about how you can actually move on rock and reading terrain. And um, so I, I do think that there's, I, I agree with you. And one of the other issues as well is it's quite easy to get back there really quickly with your fitness. And if something happens when you're back there, actually like removing you from those situations is really, really difficult as well. You're out there. You're out there. Exactly. You're not a mile from the trail. You're an ultra no, runner. No. You're, and, you're 20 miles from the trailhead. Yeah. And we're essentially going naked really, mm -hmm. you know, relative to what backpackers would carry with them or climbers. And, and I still am a huge advocate for traveling light and fast and, and I love it. Like it's just, it's really, really freeing. However, having the exact right gear for what you're looking to do is also really important. And um, so when we were doing this traverse, we, we spend a lot of time talking about what is the exact gear that we need to do this, but not an ounce more. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to be carrying anything extra, mm -hmm. but we had you know, exactly the number of you know, draws we thought we might need and a little gear to build um, anchors. To build anchors. Mm -hmm. and, you know, we had 30 meters of rope, which isn't a ton, but it was enough to at least get us through some sections, lightweight crampons, but we also had a puffy with us because we were going to be running through the night, a headlamp, a spare battery, and, uh, you know, just enough food, but really, you know, running pretty, pretty light and all those things. But we had exactly the right amount of gear. I actually kind of joke with my wife that the more, with some of this more technical gear right now, you actually need like 
significantly more gear to have exactly the right gear for what you're looking to do. Yeah, yeah that's how I justify my gear. <laughs> yeah. Guys, you heard it here, Adam Campbell. This is how you justify gear purchases. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You want me to come back alive, don't you, honey? Yeah. Or uh, ladies as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, no, I mean, Laura, Laura gets half the, half the gear room for sure. She's just as guilty as I am, which is nice. Um, but no, but getting back to your question uh, about progressing into the mountains, I mean, historically, people, you would go to a mentor and you would learn from right. your mentor right. how to move in the mountains, how to build gear, and there'd be a slow progression through that. Or, you know, some people would be a little bit quickly, but the mountains are really unforgiving, especially like real mountain terrain when you're actually having to place your own gear, mm -hmm. read avalanche conditions, and mm -hmm. um, that can only really come from a lifetime of moving through them. It's something, I don't think you ever stop learning. The right. mountains keep teaching you. And the Canadian Rockies are severe. No, they're yeah, they're notoriously dangerous range. They're notoriously dangerous. They're I don't want to insult anyone listening, but there's a certain choss pile aspect, or framed positively, we could say they're highly fractured. Yeah, no, no, I don't, I know. Actually, that's something we take pride in as well, <laughs> no, because it's like we, it's a real proving ground. They basically say if you can survive in the Canadian Rockies, and if you can move through the Canadian Rockies, you can. Survive in any mountain range in the world. Everything else is easy. Exactly. You know, just produce some of the world, most world-class ice climbers and mountaineers. This is yeah. true. Yeah. Uh, it's coming from Colorado. Colorado, I'll editorialize again, is sort of a playground. Yeah. People get really good here really fast. They go really long. They do amazing things because it's so relatively safe and predictable. Yeah. You know, we were up there in the second flat iron yesterday, and there's been, you know, a thousand, two thousand people up at so far this year, there's no loose rock to be found. No, no, it's pretty well cleared out for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so it's kind of buffed out. The root is known. So it has a, so people are just going for time and so on and so forth. But if you take that same style up to the Canadian Rockies, it's like, whoa, this is a little different. Yeah. First time I went up there, I realized you don't get out of the car without putting on a helmet. No, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And, um, and it's also, it's really remote. People don't really realize how quickly you get away from civilization it's that you don't see a lot of people out there and a lot of the classic roots have seen maybe one or two ascents and they're i mean they really are like north twin for instance is a really really famous oh, route and yeah. that's had two ascents and i mean it almost killed steve house who's like one of the premier alpinists in the world and so those sort of things there i mean they're they're real testing grounds for like hard men alpinists right yeah and um you know since my accident i've been fortunate working with arcteryx and just living in, in Camor, there's a lot of really, really competent, well-known um, mountain athletes out there. And I've got to spend a lot more time moving with them in the mountains and learning from them. And probably I've done it a little bit in reverse, but, you know, now spending the time with them and, um, you know, patience is key. Waiting for the right conditions for your objective. And it can take years for your objective years. to come in. Right. And uh, having that patience is critical. Uh, we actually had... And knowing what it means. Because it's weather... Like you said, if you're entering a race, if you're a racer, maybe you're one of the best racers in the world, you don't really think about it because you're showing up at this place, at this date, at this time, and you're going in this direction. Yeah. But if you're out there on your own project, you got to figure that out. You've been studying the snowpack, watching the warming and the melting patterns and the freezing patterns, decide when's the optimum time to go. Yeah, absolutely. And picking your time of year. And, um, and, then, you know, and then there's also just a luck component. Um, but I mean, this year alone, we had three of the best alpinists in the world die in the Canadian Rockies on House Peak, and it was it was really tragic and it really rocked our world a little bit over there. But um, 
you know, speaking to, to local development, like, yeah, it was just, it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't a great objective for that time of year. And it was, it was just, there was a lot of overhead hazard and um, we had a really, really rough snowpack this year. It was a really, really cold winter, which heavily facets the lower layers. Right. Um, well, let's shift gears on the Great White North for a second. Uh, I love it up there. Yeah. Super fun. What would our listeners like to do that isn't risking imminent death? What could you recommend? Oh, a few objectives. Well, I guess it depends mm-hmm. on if you're talking running or climbing or a mix of both. I want a little bit of mix, but you know, let's stay out of the uh, the fearsome category. For example, I've done the West Coast Trail oh, personally yeah. of uh, Vancouver Island. That's like incredible. There's 108 ladders on it. Yeah, I've heard that they they've changed it a little bit, made it a little easier. But you have to you just have to time it to get on a boat and row yourself across a river. Check the tide tables. But that's, it's beautiful. Yeah, no, and it, I mean, it has a real adventure feel to it as well. And it's, uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful coastal run for sure. And actually on Vancouver Island, there's a, a, a North Coast Trail as well, which is the West Coast Trail, what it would have been like 10, 15 years ago. So really, really rugged. Um, and it's, it's spectacular. And I mean, you're into paddling as well. There's world-class paddling up there. You've told me about the paddling. Yeah. I'm intimidated by this. Yeah, as you should be. It's a big, big ocean. I mean, you got you got an entire Pacific coming at you. So, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's the same thing. But I mean, but that and that speaks to your knowledge of and respect of the outdoors right. and why you're still around doing what you're able to do because you understand that that's that's a there's a danger, there's a risk there, and I think uh, it's calculated. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I like talking about this, Adam, because this brings to mind the things that I've always done but I don't really think consciously about. Yeah. It's called risk analysis. Oh, for sure. And it's not just, okay, here's the date, here's the time. It's all these different factors. And mm. that's one of the reasons that we like doing these projects yeah. is because the learning experience. For sure. And there's no certainty of mm. outcome. There's no certainty of finish. And you know, if fin- and finishing, actually, it's interesting. To me, finishing is just, is just one of the objectives. That's just, that is one small component of it. It's, as you say, it's the, the calculation, the risk you take, the, the, the constant analysis when you're out there. Is this still a good call? I mean, the real victory is always coming home. Like, yeah, at the end of the day, like, that's what we, we're all about. Like, that is, the, that is the real success. Anything on top of that is a cherry on the cake. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Coming home's good. Yeah. Uh, the, the other big risk I find in, with uh, a lot of these ma- like more mountainy objectives, sorry, we'll get back to your question in a second, but is um, being too objective-focused. Mm. is really, really dangerous. And you get the eye of a tiger, and I must get to the finish. And we've all heard about it in, you know, with alpinism, mountaineering, you know, people who... Everest. Ever, exactly. Yeah. Do whatever they can just to get to the summit, you know, forgetting that that's halfway. Mm-hmm. And the second half is actually harder a lot of the times. So. Yeah. Well, as of 10 days ago, there were 11 fatalities on Everest in the month of May. Yeah, really, really. And somebody from Boulder right here as well. Someone from really, Boulder. Yeah, really tragic. And he made the top. Just yeah. as you said, this guy, wow, is an interesting example. I don't want to mention any names, but he's a local physician, and he made the top. He was driven, type yeah. A, and he tagged that summit, and he got down to the Hillary Step and had to wait for two hours. Yeah, that's horrible. Sounds like a lot of fun, doesn't it? Yeah, it's and probably, probably you're, not you're much. You're at a little below 29,000 feet waiting for two hours yeah. for the queue to move off the technical section, and he perished right there. Yeah, oh, it's, it's no. really, really sad. It's not, yeah. This isn't... This isn't what we really want to do, is it, Adam? No, it's not. No. No. <laughs> There's probably some good summits in, 
in Alberta and British Columbia that might be a little more enjoyable. And some of them have never had anybody on them either, which is really wild. oh, there's still peaks out there, but never had any ascents, which is pretty wild. Wow, it is yeah. pretty wild. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, so going about the uh, being too objective focused, I think sort of reframing a little bit and being like, I'm going to go to this area and you know getting the summit or skiing this line or climbing this line is one of the objectives. But if you're going up there and it's not good, there's a lot of other fun stuff to do in the same area. And so it's, I think, um, you know, easing, dialing back a little bit on what the end goal is. Uh, the end goal is always to come home. But um, Well, you're the perfect person to talk to. I, you, you have experience in this topic. Yeah. This is great. You have good advice. Hope everyone's listening to this. So it's the PLB. It's the plan. It's the don't get too uh, goal-oriented on the objective. Yeah. Uh, it's really about coming home yeah. and then do what you need to do in between. For sure, and mentorship. and So having a good sense of where your competence is at and then taking the time to actually build up on those skills as well. It, for people that are trying to take their running and skiing into more backcountry terrain, you know, go and do the avalanche courses. They're, it's incredible Learn. knowledge. Learn. Um, you know, go and take a rock rescue course. If you're going to mm -hmm. be climbing and if you don't know how to escape your belay, if you don't mm -hmm. know how to lower somebody, you're probably shouldn't be climbing <laughs> to a Good certain point. degree. Yes. You're right. This is it. This is interesting. It brings up running, yeah. which is primal. It's natural. Everybody technically knows how to run. Yeah. Actually, their form might need a lot of work, but yeah, that, they can still run. You can go out and run. Well, climbing and skiing, et cetera, et cetera, paddling for that matter, there's a lot more technique involved. So people who entered those sports early on are used to having to learn skills. Exactly. Well, someone who comes out of running might not be used to learning a skill set. Yeah. No, so one, of, I mean, one of my big challenges was you know, giving up a weekend to go and do one of those courses because I was like, no, I'd rather be out running in the mountains. But it also, the way I've justified it is it's going to allow me a lifetime of moving in the mountains. It's going to let me get into more interesting places, which is ultimately what I want to be doing. And so building that skill set is incredibly useful. Well, speaking of what you want to be doing, is there what? What are your thoughts here? You're probably still going to do a little bit of racing. Apparently, you still want to be doing big projects in the mountains. Anything specific or anything general? What yeah, no, no. There's there's a lot. So I'm actually going to be going to Europe in, um, in a couple of weeks to go run a, one of the Ultimate Direction races, the Monte Rosa Sky Marathon. Oh, you're doing the Sky? Yeah, I'm going to do that with Laura. That was really the cool. first. You and your wife are doing We're it. We're going to do it together. Oh my word! Yeah. That's great. It'll be really special. It'll you be... you could go after. Uh, Killian and Emily's time. No, that's right. You know, easy. <laughs> no race there at all. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, definitely not. We were out there just to have a, to really enjoy the experience. And That was the first sky race. It was, exactly. That, you know this. Yeah, as historic as it gets. Okay. Well, and for people who don't know, it's a 35-kilometer race with 3,500 meters of vert. So that's about 21 miles, 22 miles with 10,000 feet of vert. So think about that. That's like, because you run up and then you run down. So... It's actually 11 miles with 10,000 feet. <laughs> it's 11 miles with 10,000 feet of earth. Exactly. Nice. Yeah. And you go up to them, you're up at 5,000 meters, which is 16,000, 17,000 feet. So you're up there. Well, Motorosa is the second highest summit in the Alps. Exactly, yeah. Um, the Matterhorn is not. It's Mont Blanc, then Motorosa. Yeah. And... But it's required partners. Exactly. Because you're on glaciers. You're on glacier, yeah. And so you have to be roped together. So it's, a, it's not next level. It's two, three levels above anything you see in the States. Yeah. No, I mean... Partners, no. you can't enter this race solo. You exactly. have to have a partner. Yeah. And I mean, anytime you go out in a glacier, you probably should be roped up and with a partner for sure. Even if it seems a little benign, you've been there before, it's just pretty good practice. And 
the other thing, I mean, learning how to do all that stuff efficiently, you can actually move really quickly, like, and learning how to, those little skills and tricks, how to, to move roped up is, that's a whole other discussion we could have for sure. But you can do all those things efficiently. And, uh, I, I, you know, this is the fastest known podcast. And I think that a lot of these objectives, like knowing how to, you know, to move efficiently, you know, it's interesting actually talking to a guide friend the other day. He's like, you know, knowing how to move slowly to be quick. You know, so taking taking a minute every now and then just to make sure that all your systems are properly set up, it actually allows you to be quicker over the day. Interesting. Not rushing things. Not rushing things. Yeah, and in retrospect, I rushed through a rock band and it almost cost me my life. Good yeah. point. Yeah. So well, it slowed us down and, you know, we didn't get the FKT because of that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, I missed the FKT. Yeah. Oh, shucks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you also earlier told me that you're going to keep running and racing, but... Your speed, your speed can't come back to what it was. But you've said you're a better athlete now. Yeah, for sure. Because I spend a lot more time uh, pursuing activities that had always really drawn me. Uh, so the climbing and, uh, and and backcountry skiing. But because I was quite focused on running, I was a little bit hesitant about really committing to them. And after my accident, it sort of made me reevaluate what I wanted to be doing. And I was like, no, I really enjoy doing these things. So let's spend some time working on the skills. And um, it's also you know, I'm, I'm 40 years old. Now, not that that's really old, but, you know, I was, I, I've been running for a long time. And uh, I'm improving at those other sports. And it's really fun to improve at other sports. And it's opened up this whole other world to me. I've started ice climbing as well. And all of a sudden, you just go into these incredible little canyons, places you never would have been able to go to before without the skill level. And it doesn't even have to be hard to be fun. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Good point. I, okay, we need a quote here from Adam Campbell. Did you catch that one? It does not have to be hard to be fun. This this is memorable. Yeah, a lot of that sort of, you know, lower technical terrain where you can just keep moving all day. I love that stuff. And it's well below, like, what my physical climbing potential is. But I love it because you're just covering tons of new terrain. And, um, and it's been fun also getting out with uh, local climbers and alpinists and helping them see train in a new way as well and sort of mixing the two. So I get to learn from them with their technical skills, but all of a sudden looking at peaks and be like, well, have you ever looked at linking that peak to that peak? They're like, no, that's a one day ascent. I was like, well, does it have to be? No, you can do both of them together. So let's go and try to figure out a way of uh, mixing our fitness and sort of looking at terrain in a whole new way. And it's changed their perspective as well. So it's really fun to get to do that. You brought your endurance ability into the equation. Yeah, absolutely. And then also just learning how to pare down your kit a little bit as well. Um, as you say, going out to what is really, really essential. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I carry the PLB, as we discussed. I carry a space blanket. I always carry a space blanket. Space so, <laughs> yeah. right. yeah, no, so blanket is one ounce. And what the heck? I've used it before. Yeah, so, so have I. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah well, no, I mean, that's the, they wrap me in a space blanket as well as my down jacket. And this was in the middle of summer. It was warm out, but I was going into shock. And the same thing without that, I may not have lived. Wow. Yeah. Well, I did not take a 200-foot fall when I used mine, but uh, they, they work remarkably well. Oh, it's yeah. like one ounce. What the heck? No, absolutely. You know, you get stuck in a rain, a little quick little rainstorm. You guys get those all the time in Colorado. We just roll through really quickly, and the temperatures can drop. And, right. You know, if, uh, you know, if you've been going for a few hours, and I find if you've been out for like six or eight hours, your body can do a little bit weird things temperature-wise. And if you have to sit still for an hour or so as that electrical storm rolls through, your core temperature can drop right away. You could actually go quite hypothermic. Right. So putting right. that on makes a big difference. Yeah, I've that's one one 
things I've done with it at, at Timberline. I actually back down just a couple hundred meters right below Timberline to the Krumholz. That's the German term for those stunted trees right at Timberline. Okay, yeah. Krumholz. Krumholz. And just crawled into it where they had those little uh, leeward side, little cave-like formations and pulled the space blanket over me. Yeah. And just gave it an hour. Yeah, just pretend you're a hobbit for an hour. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you were living in Victoria, the capital of British Columbia. Yeah, correct. An epic spot right on the coast, and uh, the inward coast. So you're on Vancouver Island, which is a huge island. So the, the windward coast is the other side. You are on the leeward coast, which so is actually pretty nice weather. Oh, really it, nice, yeah. It's not nearly as cold and dark as people think it is. No, and because you're also in a rain shadow from Vancouver. Um, so it, and you, you have the Georgia Strait as well. So all those things act as a bit of a rain shadow. So it does get a bit of precipitation, but it's, it's a much more mild climate than you would get in like the Seattle, Vancouver area. Right. Yeah. And now you're moving to Canmore. Uh, well, yeah, we, I moved about uh, five years ago. So oh. I've been in Canmore for about five years now. Oh, yeah. my apologies. That's no, all right, yeah. And that's just downstream from Banff. Correct, yeah, about 10 miles outside of Banff. Mm -hmm. Just head towards Calgary, down the Bow River. Correct, yeah, absolutely, well done. Yeah, yeah you know your Canadian geography, that's amazing. Well, well I've, uh, I, yeah, I've, uh, uh, yeah. I'll tell you, offline, I'll tell you a story about the Bow River. Yeah, okay, great. <laughs> wow. yeah. I consider that one carefully. Let me turn the mics on you. <laughs> but the old Canadian Alpine Club headquarters was in Banff, and it was super classic. It was like this like 50-foot-high log chalet that they served high tea at 4 p.m. I mean, it was old world charm it was it was next level stuff and i was just swept off my feet from the canadian alpine club hut it wasn't a hut at all it was like a big chalet yeah up in banff and i walked in one time I was like wow this is just this is incredible i was just wowed and i was going up to the bugaboos and there's some guy just hunched over on this you know hand-hewed wooden uh table just hunched over and furiously looking through all these old climbing handwritten guidebooks and things like that. And I walked up and said, hey, what's up? What are you looking at? The guy goes, ar, 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 and goes back and I realized, oops, that was Fred Becky. Oh my God, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's pretty legendary. I just, yeah. I'll just let him figure it out and yeah. just kind of, you know, not say anything. Yeah, no, he's put up uh, amazing routes around the Canadian Rockies and, I mean, around the world, really. But, uh, no, it's... Uh, we owe, we owe a, a great deal to that quirky man. So, yeah. And the, the area up there has that European charm, if you will. Pardon me if yeah. that's an improper word, but there's the little huts up there. They serve tea and crumpets. Uh, yeah. So so actually, Laura and I got married at the Alpine Club headquarters oh. in oh. Camor. So they oh. moved it to Camor now, and we actually got married there. Um but the so the huts are, are self catered. They're not they're not catered huts. Um, Some around Lake Louise are. Yeah, no, for sure. <laughs> no, no, and those are the main epicenters for sure. But uh, I mean, the huts were built by Swiss Alpine guides. They were brought over by the CP Rail, um, wow. so the Canadian Pacific Railway, as a way of promoting tourism. And actually, Rogers Pass is where they built the first one. So where I had my accident was. Uh, where they started using mountaineering as a way of bringing tourism to Canada. Well, Rogers Pass is where the, the loop is on the Trans-Canadian Railway, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it, it actually the rail line does an actual loop. It's not a switchback. It just loops to lose elevation. Yeah, that's correct, yeah. yeah that's uh, good stuff up there. Yeah, no, and, the, and those huts are an amazing resource to, uh, to access as well. Um, I'm not sure when you said the cane hut when you went up to the Bugaboos. Yes. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's a beautiful hut as well. Well, that it wasn't when I was there. 
Oh, okay. It was pre-Beautiful Hut. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> there was different iterations of that. Yeah, I know, for sure. Um, but I mean, that whole area, and people are asking what area, you're asking what areas to go, going up to the Bugaboos is one of them. And even though it's well known as a technical climbing area and like beautiful granite, um, there's an amazing trail running up, up there. You can stay away from the glaciated area if you're not comfortable in that kind of terrain. And then there's amazing runs and, and some of the most beautiful like just spires you'll ever, you could ever imagine. Pigeon. Pigeon Bugger spire. Snow patch. Exactly. Yeah, and the Hauser Towers are behind it. Oh, yeah. yeah this, yeah. <laughs> so that, that's one of, one of the areas I definitely recommend people go see. Even just driving up and all of a sudden just being awed by it. Right. So they have a bit of a trek back there, but and you, you've also climbed Assiniboine. I have, which is another amazing area for trail running. It's got same thing, you know. If you if you're into the you know the scrambling or the, I mean, it's you know mid fifth class. So it's a it's a proper mountain, and weather can change quickly on it. But uh, there's amazing trail running around that, and it's the Matterhorn of the Rockies. It, it kind of looks a little bit like that. It does. It's our Toblerone. Yeah. <laughs> Your Toblerone. <laughs> uh, well, please go to fastestknowntime.com and look on the map. Our, our web designer, Jeff Schuler, has done this insane job. So there's a world map there with these little symbols on it. And you can zoom in and look for cool routes or go to the top of the menu bar under routes and pull these things down. Because, you know, we don't have to do the northwest ridge of Mount Sir Donald to have fun up in Canada, do we? I mean, no, there's other not. nice things to do. Oh, there's amazing. I mean, I, I'd recommend anybody come to Canmore. In my, Canmore. My biased opinion is one of the most beautiful mountain running, trail running destinations in the world. I mean, Banff is actually the most Instagram mountain town in the world. It is? Apparently, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so I mean, I'd stay away from like, and, but that's, you know, it's classic. You know, 90% of the people go to 10% of the places. Um, so if you get off Banff Main Avenue, you can easily escape the crowds like really, really quickly and be out there and have a real nature experience. And it's uh, but really, really world class mountain running and trail running. And it is, yeah, yeah. Mount Rundle is towering above the. Yeah, exactly. Side. So the Rundle Traverse that's in, that's one of my favorites. Ah, uh, like okay. sort of semi, well, no, quite fairly technical uh, traverses, and that links up uh, Camera to Banff. But that's the same thing. That's not that's not a trail run. That's a it's a little mountaineering objective, but there's there's beautiful uh, there's a beautiful riverside trail that connects Camor to Banff as well, and it's an amazing amazing run right along the the, the toe of Mount Rundle. Oh man, you get me going. I'm just uh... I've already you know the uh, the invites open. We love to have you up there. So yeah. well, thanks, Adam. Thank you very much. And this has been very insightful. I really appreciate it because you, you're the guy who can really talk about it. You're an excellent runner. You took this massive fall almost lucky to be alive you could say and you've come back you got a smile on your face you got a beautiful wife you're doing very cool things you're enjoying the heck out of it so if you say you know it doesn't have to be hard to be fun you're the guy to listen to yeah no for sure and um you know it, i'm very fortunate as you say to, to be alive and I, and I really really do take that seriously and uh you know you know obviously wish it hadn't happened like you know you can't say but it's it's really given me a lot in my life. It really has uh, been. It's given me. I don't know. It's you know one. It's given me an amazing wife. I get like really helped Laura and I uh, in a lot of ways. Um, it's given me a new appreciation for the mountains. I've, the other thing that happened actually during the accident is when I was sitting in the hospital room, I, I realized that I, I didn't have use of my body. I, I, didn't, I just couldn't use my body and. Um, I realized that my physical outlet was one of my only outlets that I had, emotional outlets, mm -hmm. during one of the most trying times of my life. So I had to develop new coping mechanisms. So I learned, I started sketching, for instance, which is really beautiful. And had you done that before? I'd never done that before. Gee. And, you know, I started really journaling quite a lot. Wow. And the, what that did as well is it also taught me appreciation for just standing still. 
I've always moved through places, and and I still don't get me wrong, I, that is still my jam. Like I'd rather be moving through places, but you know, being forced to sit there and like stare at the mountains I've always moved through and sketching, I got to see them in a whole new light, and um, so that, that was really, really enlightening and really a very, very powerful experience. I want to take your advice verbally rather than repeat your experience. I'm going to learn from your verbal advice. No, for sure. And, and fortunately, I've been given a platform to be able to, to at least share some of these uh, these lessons. And hopefully, it can, you know, even if it just saves one person from making a really, from ending up in the same situation I I was in, it's, um, you know, I'd, I'd be pleased to know that. But, you know, go and, go and take those courses. You know, the wilderness first aid is trail runners. That's an incredibly useful thing to have because spraining your ankle when you're 10 miles out knowing what to do, breaking your leg, you know, losing your leg. It's like any of those things can be, they can happen to any of us when we're out there. As Rick Trujillo famously says, the mountains don't care. No, they really don't. And they don't care about your name, title, years of experience in them. Just, uh, you know, give them a lot of respect and they, they deserve it. You know, we, they're incredibly beautiful and incredibly dangerous. On that note, I bid you adieu. And I look forward to seeing you, having you back on this podcast later on. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. It was a great conversation.